So, forgiveness. What's the first thing we think about when we hear the word forgiveness? As Christians, the first thing that comes to our mind is the forgiveness our Creator has bestowed on us graciously for our sinfulness. And we think about how thankful we are for that, and that is true. The Bible clearly teaches the wonderful truth that God is a forgiving God. In Exodus uh, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, God described himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Scripture is full of examples of the wonderful forgiveness of God towards his children. But the one that illustrates it the best, I think, could be the story of the prodigal son. I'm sure we're all uh, familiar with that story. A father had two sons, one of whom took his share of inheritance and left. After living a life of debauchery, his money ran out and he had to take a low-level job feeding pigs. When he realized the pigs were eating better than he was, he decided to go home. He never expected forgiveness, but thought if, if he could only be treated as just another one of his father's hired hands. Well, we know the rest of the story. His father lavished forgiveness on him and celebrated his return. It's a perfect example of how God lavishes forgiveness upon his own children. So in a sense, it could be said, and I think we could all agree, that God is never more like himself than when he forgives. And then there are two truths to that statement. The first one is, if God is never more like himself than when he forgives, man is never more like God than when he forgives. Proverbs 19.11 says, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. And I take that to mean that God is glorified every time we forgive someone. The second truth is that God's forgiveness of us is based on our forgiveness of others. In James 2.13, James says, Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Jesus made that very clear to us in the, in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And if we remember in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus taught us to pray, part of that prayer said, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Then in Matthew six fourteen and 15, he tells us, If you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So we see there is another side to the coin of forgiveness. It's not just the Father forgiving His children, it's also His children forgiving others for any and all trespasses against them. Now, before we start thinking that God will take back the forgiveness that he gave us for our sins at the moment of our salvation, if we neglect to forgive others, we must remember that that is a done deal. God will not take back his salvation. 
the forgiveness that we read about in the previous scripture is, is not the comprehensive forgiveness that accompanies the event of salvation because that is done. Rather, it is God's relational, continual forgiveness that accompanies the process of sanctification of believers. You might say it, it's a paradox. Christians are already fully forgiven, but still need ongoing forgiveness. According to 1 John uh, chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We still must confess our sins. It's a sobering truth that believers would forfeit God's blessing and invite His chastening in their lives if they fail to forgive others. Unfortunately, we live in a society that is ego-centered and selfish and knows little about forgiveness and cares less. Our culture has become so wretched and non-Christian that we see forgiving people as weak and unforgiving people as strong. Our culture, our culture celebrates and exalts those TV and movie heroes who take vengeance on others. We blame others for our shortcomings and we are told that we should make those people pay who have offended us. The result is a society filled with bitterness, vengeance, anger, and hate. On the other hand, I think an excellent illustration of where true forgiveness originates from can be found in Luke 23, verse 34, where Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As Jesus hung, on, hung there on the cross, he prayed not only for his persecutors, but for all true believers. And that meant he had prayed and died for all of us who have repented and believed who are living in our day. True forgiveness originates from the Holy Spirit. I don't believe we can ever truly forgive someone unless we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I believe that happens at the moment of conversion. Christians forgive because they are reconciled to Jesus Christ. Unbelievers do not have that capacity. Paul points that out in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 16. And why don't we turn there now in our Bibles to Romans 3. Verses 10 through 16. Here Paul says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The people Paul just described to us are controlled by bitterness and will find it very difficult to forgive. So for a Christian, unwillingness to forgive is unthinkable. It is a rebellious, blatant, open act of disobedience to God. We are to forgive others as God has forgiven us. 
Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. If we are unforgiving, that produces bitterness in us. The longer we dwell on offenses committed against us, the more bitter we become. Bitterness is not just a sin, it's an infection. Hebrews 12, 15 tells us, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Bitterness distorts a person's whole outlook on life, producing violent emotions, intolerance, and thoughts of revenge. It is especially devastating to the marriage relationship. Bitterness shuts off the affection and kindness that should exist between a husband and a wife. All too often, bitterness and unforgiveness produce the root of divorce. On the other hand, forgiveness replaces bitterness with love, joy, peace, and all the other fruits of the Spirit. Also, if we are unforgiving, that gives Satan an open door. Paul warns us in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. And then he tells us in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, verses 10 and 11, now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. If we were to say that most of the ground Satan gains in our lives is due to unforgiveness, that would be no exaggeration. Forgiveness blocks that avenue of demonic attack. Unforgiveness also hinders our fellowship with God. It is very unsettling to know that you cannot be right with God if you are unforgiving of others. Forgiveness restores our place of maximum blessing from God. It restores the joy of fellowship with God. Forgiveness is so important that the Holy Spirit devoted an entire book of the Bible to it. And I think it's very crucial that we grasp the importance of the theme of forgiveness in Paul's letter to Philemon, because it is the underlying message of this epistle. The letter was written around 60 to 62 AD, the same time as the letter to the Colossians. In fact, the two letters were delivered together to Colossae by Tychicus. Apparently, Philemon had been led to saving faith in Jesus Christ several years earlier by Paul. Because Paul refers to him as a fellow worker in verse 1, it is apparent that he was active in serving the cause of Christ. He also was a slave owner, owning at least one slave whose name was Onesimus. The occasion of the epistle was this. Philemon's slave, Onesimus, having either embezzled his master's goods or robbed him, 
ran away from him and fled to Rome, where the Apostle Paul was a prisoner in chains in his own rented house and where many came to hear the gospel preached by him. Onesimus was among those that went to hear him and was converted under his ministry. That conversion displays the riches of the grace of God in the conversion of such a depraved human being. The purpose of Paul in writing to Philemon was to assure his friend of his high regard for him and to persuade him to receive, forgive, and reinstate Onesimus. Paul's skillful execution of the difficult task of securing a reconciliation between an offended master and an offending but now penitent and transformed slave presents a masterpiece of Christian tact and spiritual wisdom. Paul shows great humility, and he did not think that it was below him to be concerned about the reconciliation of a master to his servant. Paul would have rather kept Onesimus with him because he was ministering to Paul, but he knew that the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon needed to be restored. Paul knew that whether Onesimus lived or died was entirely up to Philemon because it was his legal right. Slaves were constantly crucified for far lesser offenses than his. Onesimus was a thief and a runaway. He had no claim to forgiveness. The fact that Onesimus was willing to return to Philemon and risk such punishment speaks of the genuineness of his faith Now, before we get to our text, I think we would be remiss if we didn't touch on the subject of slavery. Slavery forms the backdrop to Philemon, and we can't truly appreciate the book's meaning without some understanding of slavery in the Roman Empire. Slavery was actually taken for granted as a normal part of life in the ancient world. Truly, the whole structure of Roman society was based on slavery. The number of slaves was was enormous, making up as much as a third of the population of the Roman Empire. Slaves were not actually considered persons under the law, but the property of their owners. They could be sold, exchanged, given away, or seized to pay their master's debt. A slave had no legal rights. However, by the New Testament era, slavery was changing. The treatment of slaves was improving, partly because masters realized that contented slaves worked better. And though they were not recognized as persons, slaves began to acquire some legal rights. It is important to note that the New Testament nowhere attacks slavery directly. Had Jesus and the apostles done so, the result would have been chaos. Any slave insurrection would have been brutally crushed and the slaves massacred. The gospel would have been overwhelmed by the message of social reform. It's critical to remember that the Bible is not a book about social reform. It is a book about the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners. If uh, you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9.
like this. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh and with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. The Greek word used for bondservants is doulos, which is slave in English and literally means to be owned by someone for a lifetime. This word is found at least 127 times in 119 verses in the New Testament scriptures. In the original Greek text, slave was the word used where we now see the words servant or bondservant, and is the true and only meaning of the word doulos. When the translators translated the New Testament from Greek to English, slavery was a very distasteful subject as it is in our day. Anyone in their right mind does not condone the buying and selling of human beings, so the translators tried to soften the meaning some by using the word servant or bondservant. But in doing so, they watered down the true meaning of the scripture in which they were used. In the Legacy Standard Bible, they actually use the words from the, the original Greek and Hebrew text. For example, in the Old Testament, they use Yahweh instead of Lord, and they use the word slave wherever that word was appropriate, such as in Romans chapter 1. In Paul's greeting, Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ, not a servant. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find awake when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them incline at the table and will come up and wait on them. And again, in Matthew 25, verse 23, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with many things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The idea of being a slave to anyone doesn't set well with most people, especially here in America. After all, we are the land of the free, and that's a good thing, but we can't let that con a concept corrupt our idea of what Christianity really is. We are all slaves of our master in heaven. Jesus paid a horrible price for us, he took the wrath of God that was meant for us, the shame and the guilt for our iniquities. And as we just read in Ephesians 9, he is our master and there is no partiality with him. He makes no distinction between man or woman, rich or poor, sick or healthy, or slave or freedmen. And again, if you would turn in your Bibles again, let's, let's go to... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll be reading verses 17 through 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 17 through 24. 
And it reads like this. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordained in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. And so we see that we are all called to salvation, to give glory to God and to do his will, no matter what our circumstances are in this life. Remember what the Lord said to Paul when he prayed to, to have the, the thorn in his flesh removed. God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. And that pertains to every believer. It was Christianity that actually sowed the seeds of the destruction of slavery. It wasn't destroyed by social reform. It was destroyed by changed hearts. The book of Philemon illustrates that principle. Paul does not order Philemon to free Onesimus or teach that slavery is evil. But by ordering Philemon to treat Onesimus as a brother, Paul eliminated the abuses of slavery. Marvin Vincent puts it this way, and I quote, The principles of the gospel not only curtailed slavery's abuses, but destroyed the thing itself, for it could not exist without its abuses. To destroy its abuses was to destroy it, end quote. So with that, why don't we go to our text? It's found in Philemon, the book of Philemon. And this morning we'll be, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Philemon 1 through 7. And it reads as follows. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. So starting with verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. This is the customary greeting of one of Paul's letters in that it starts with his name and conforms to the practice of that day. It contains the usual three elements, namely the writer, the reader, and the greeting. 
So uh, the, the name of Paul at the beginning of this letter would have made Philemon's heart skip a beat. Paul was largely responsible for the spread of Christianity throughout the region, and any message from him would have been eagerly read. To see Paul's name, it must have aroused many fond memories in the mind of Philemon and those of his household. Paul was the one who led Philemon to Christ, so he knew the letter would be personal yet instructional. Paul describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He does not begin any of his other letters with that description. Paul usually adds some descriptive title or designation indicative of his position and authority. Quite frequently, he describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. On occasion, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. But in this letter, Paul omits all reference to his official authority as an apostle or distinctive position of servant as not appropriate for a friendly letter. He rather describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. It was for the sake of Christ and through the will of Christ that he was a prisoner. There is no comfort or honor in being a prisoner, but for Paul, being a prisoner for his faith and preaching of the gospel was true glory and would be strong motivation for Philemon to consider the request that is being made to him by Paul. It is because of his relationship to Christ that Paul is a prisoner. As he himself is the Lord's slave, he will plead for another slave whose story is the subject of this letter. Philemon knew all that Paul had suffered for the cause of Christ. That knowledge was bound to influence his willingness to do what Paul asked of him. And then verse 1 goes on to say, And Timothy, our brother. Paul was not saying that Timothy was a brother in the flesh. He may have just been stating that Timothy was, was a brother in the faith, a child of God and of the same family in Christ, but it is more likely that he was stressing the fact that he was of the same ministry, a minister of the gospel, the same as Paul and Philemon. And so he was probably well known to Philemon and, and much respected by him. The fact that Paul and Timothy were making a joint appeal would give Philemon more reason to consider their plea. Timothy was not the co-author of the letter, but he was with Paul when he was when it was written, as he was very often. Paul mentions Timothy quite frequently at the beginning of his letters. Sometimes he calls him his son in the faith, but here he calls him his brother, probably because now Timothy has grown in years. It could very well be that Paul mentions Timothy so often because he was probably the heir apparent to Paul's ministry. Paul was grooming Timothy and gave him as much exposure as he could so it would be easier for the church to accept him as their future leader. And then verse 1 ends with, To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Although others are named in the salutation along with Philemon, the letter is unmistakably directed to him. Paul uses the second person plural pronoun in verse 3 in the greeting, but he doesn't use it again until the conclusion in verse 
verses 22 and 25, the, the second person's singular pronoun, having direct reference to Philemon himself, occurs no less than 20 times in the epistle. Twice Paul addresses him directly as brother. The name of Philemon does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament. It appears that he is the head of the household, which is the recipient of this letter. He was a resident of the town of Colossae. This is evident from Paul's statements concerning Onesimus. In, in Colossians 4.9, Onesimus is said to belong to Colossae, and according to verse 12 in this epistle, Paul was sending him back there to Philemon. As we will see in verse 19, it is evident that Philemon was led to Christ by Paul. Paul had never been to Colossae, as Colossians 2.1 indicate, so it seems probable that Philemon met Paul during the apostles' long stay at Ephesus and was converted there. He seems to have been a man of prominent social standing and probably quite wealthy. And this is implied not by the fact that he owned a slave, but from the fact that he had a house large enough to form a meeting place for Christians, according to verse 2. Paul calls him our beloved. The Greek word is agapitos. It means highly esteemed or worthy of love. Philemon had endeared himself to both Paul and Timothy, and they both had a sincere love for him. Philemon's character shows forth in this epistle and presents a noble picture worthy of the apostles' love and esteem. The phrase, our fellow worker, indicates another reason for this love. Their labors in a common cause bound them together. Philemon was probably a fellow minister of the gospel. He wasn't just an official in the church at Colossae but worked in the same cause that was so dear to the heart of Paul. Fellow laborer from the Greek is sunergos and means cooperator, partner, or collaborator. It was a term used by Paul for those who had worked alongside him in the cause of Christ. Philemon was one of those who worked alongside Paul and developed a friendship with him. And now... Paul is putting that friendship on the line for the sake of the spiritual principle of forgiveness and reconciling Philemon and Onesimus. And that brings us to verse 2. To the, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. There are two other individuals and a group of believers that are associated with Philemon in this salutation. Some versions say, to our sister, Aphia, and the Vulgate Latin version says, to our beloved sister, Aphia. It is commonly assumed that Aphia was the wife of Philemon. The position of her name between that of Philemon and Archippus implies her close relationship to Philemon. Otherwise, her name would have been placed after that of Archippus. Paul's designation of her as our sister shows that she too was a Christian and thus was in the same mindset as Philemon. She too was probably deeply affected and offended by what Onesimus had done. As the wife of Philemon, she naturally would have a definite interest in the return of Onesimus 
and could influence the decision of her husband in this case. Paul is appealing to her to have an interest in a matter that affects the church and their household. To that of Philemon and Aphia, Paul adds the name of Archippus, who is most likely their son. Paul describes Archippus as a fellow soldier, which shows he was also actively involved in the ministry. He probably served in the church at Colossae. All we know about Archippus is written in Colossians 4, verse 17, which says, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. The fact that Paul is giving instructions to Archippus as an older man to a younger man gives credence to the idea that Archippus was the son of Philemon and Aphia. Paul's description of Archippus as our fellow soldier is a gracious compliment to this Christian worker. It implies that he has shown himself as an aggressive soldier in the battle for the Lord. Just where he had been engaged in spiritual campaigns with the apostle is not known, but perhaps it was alongside his father Philemon while they were both with Paul at Ephesus. At any rate, it reveals Paul's appreciation and approval of the ministry Archippus is carrying on in a Colossae. The picture of the Christian life as a warfare is common in the writings of Paul. It may have been stimulated by his environment at that time that these prison epistles were written. That picture is appropriate for the whole Christian life, then as well as now, was and is a continuing battle. By means of the descriptions Paul uses, he tactfully recognizes both Philemon and Archippus as comrades in Christian activity, Philemon in his labors and Archippus in the ranks of the battle. And although Paul is now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he still claims the right to stand with them as a laborer and a soldier. Also named in the address is the church in your house. The gathering of this group of believers in the house of Philemon is characteristic of the time. First century churches met in homes, as church buildings were unknown until the third century. The oldest known church was found at Dura Europos, on the bank of the Euphrates River in the Syrian desert. It dates from the first half of the third century. Before that, Christian congregations were dependent upon the hospitality of wealthy members who could furnish their own houses for this purpose. This is an indication of the social status of Philemon. Although Philemon was a private letter, Paul wanted it read to the church. And though Philemon was the only one in control of what happens to Onesimus, his actions concerning him is not strictly a private affair. He cannot forget that, as a member of a larger spiritual community, his dealings with Onesimus will be of vital concern to them. His treatment of Onesimus will have a lasting significance for the group. They would then understand the importance of forgiveness and could hold Philemon accountable. It was in that spiritual circle that a pardoned and restored Onesimus would have to find his place at Colossae. By including Philemon's family and the church when writing to him, 
yet keeping it within the limits of these groups, shows the tact and wisdom of the the Apostle Paul. And that brings us to verse 3, which reads as follows. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's standard greeting. It appears in all 13 of his epistles. Paul is a well-wisher to all his friends and wishes for them the best things, not gold, not silver, nor any earthly good, but his first wish is for grace and peace from God in Christ. He cannot give those things himself, but he prays for them from him who can bestow them. The you in grace to you is in the plural and includes all those who have been named, Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, and the church. And for Paul, these words are vastly more than a mere conventional greeting. They are, in reality, a fervent wish or prayer for the readers. In this private letter, Paul uses the same greeting he uses in his public instructional letters. It at once lifts this whole scenario into the very presence of God and sanctifies it with the name of Jesus Christ. The way the greeting is formulated indicates both the scope of the apostle's loving wish and the source to which he looks for its fulfillment. The nature of the desired blessing is grace and peace. They are heaven's choicest blessings. Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God through which salvation is bestowed upon the lost. It reminds us of our sins and speaks of their forgiveness by an infinite compassion. Peace is the result of receiving the grace of God. It expresses the outcome of a right relationship between God and man brought about through grace. Grace designates the source of salvation, while peace speaks of the result of salvation. The order in Paul's salutations is always grace and peace, never the reverse. We cannot know the peace of God without first receiving the grace of God. The source to which Paul looks for the fulfillment of this wish is indicated in these words, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These blessings come from a double source. They come from him who holds the relationship of Father to all believers because of their union with his Son. They also come from the Son, who is given the authoritative position of Lord in the lives of the believers. The coming together of the Father and the Son under the same preposition from is indicative of Paul's faith in the equality of the Father and the Son and the identity of the operations proceeding from both. D. Edmund Hebert puts it this way, and I quote, As one who was steeped in the Hebrew revelation of the unity of God, for Paul to have united the name of Jesus with that of God, if he thought him but a man, would have been blasphemy. End quote. So verse 3 is to be understood as an affirmation of the deity of Christ and his equality with God. This was the unfailing source of grace and peace upon which Philemon would need to draw on in dealing with the problem about to be presented to, to him. Every believer 
has the same source at their disposal for limitless supplies of grace and the enjoyment of a peace that surpasses all understanding. We as believers are no longer at enmity with our Creator. We are no longer at war with Him or rebel against Him. We can now enjoy our peace with God for eternity. And that leads us into the body of the letter and verse 4. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. As usual in Paul's writings, he begins the letter with a paragraph of thanksgiving and intercession. This practice reveals the habitual devoutness of his spirit. The only exceptions to that rule are in 2 Corinthians, where Paul was under great emotional strain because of the petty suspicions and unfounded charges in his enemies in Corinth. And Galatians, where a vehement denunciation of their fickleness takes the place of his usual thanksgiving. These exceptions prove that Paul's practice of thanksgiving for his readers was not a mere formality, but rather the natural and sincere expression of his feelings at the time of his writing. Paul wisely does not dive headfirst into the matter which was the occasion of this letter. In this first paragraph, he tactfully begins with a heartfelt expression of his own high esteem for Philemon. His first move is to pour out his own heart to his friend. The opening verse of this paragraph describes the nature of Paul's thanksgiving. It is toward God and personal and continual. Paul followed the practice of immediately lifting everything which came into his life up to God in thanksgiving and prayer. As Christians, we too need to exercise this practice of consciously bringing every circumstance in our life before the Lord. This practice is extremely valuable for victorious living. Paul says, I thank my God. God is the object of Paul's praises and, and prayers for Philemon. God is the author of all the good that is in anyone or the good that is done by anyone. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 13 and 14 says this, Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. So even our praises and our thanksgivings we offer up to God originate from Him. We are unable to, to properly praise and thank Him on our own. As Paul is thanking God, he says, I thank my God. Paul knew God in his personal experiences. He was conscious of a vital personal relationship with Him. When he speaks of God as my God, he is remembering his reconciliation to him and an awareness of God's love for him. God was a vital reality to Paul, and he instinctively turned to him in joy as well as in sorrow. It is a privilege for every believer to approach God as his own God. Sadly, the phrase, my God, has taken on an entirely different meaning in today's world. We hear it over and over as an exclamation, mostly by 
people who don't even accept him as their God. When we approach God, it should be with awe and reverence and praise, glorifying his holy name. That's the way it should always be. That's the way it was with Paul. Paul was a man of much prayer. He was frequently at the throne of grace, and he prayed not for himself only, but for all his saints and for all the churches and ministers of the gospel. Not only were they on his heart and mind, but he made mention of them by name, and so he did for Philemon. The thanksgiving is continual, as evidenced by the word always. In some versions, always is placed right after the phrase, I thank my God. It gives the idea that Paul's sense of thanksgiving is, is not a limited expression of thanks, but he finds himself repeatedly giving thanks to God for Philemon. These constant thanks for Philemon are offered in the course of Paul's regular prayer periods. Paul's practice of praying for the readers of his epistle is well known. He was always able to give thanks to God when he prayed for Philemon. He knew him. He worked with him. Paul knew nothing negative about him. The book of Philemon is proof of that. Paul does not correct Philemon, and there is no suggestion that anything was wrong in his life. Everything Paul heard about Philemon was good. There is no threatening language that might assume Paul thought that forgiving Onesimus would be hard for Philemon, but rather there was a spirit that expected that he would forgive him. True Christians forgive because they have been forgiven and are reconciled to Jesus Christ. The reason Paul is giving thanks for Philemon is because of the reports which he is hearing about him. And so he says in verse 5, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Paul probably heard the reports from Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke who were all with him at the time of this writing. They all were well acquainted with Philemon, especially Epaphras who was a fellow Colossian with him. Onesimus himself more than likely contributed to the report, having known Philemon better than most. The report was favorable to Paul. It informed him of Philemon's love and faith. Those two things come from the free favor and love of God, and they are the pure gifts of his grace. We are to be thankful to only God for them because they can't be attributed to the power or will of man. They are the fruits of the Spirit of God and are the main ingredients in sanctification, which is entirely his work. Love and faith are in all regenerate people and are the evidence of regeneration. We know that because of our salvation and eternal life. Love and faith always go together and are inseparable from each other. There cannot be true faith where there is no love, for faith works by love. And there cannot be real love where there is no faith. True love is only possible among the saints because of their faith. Because Philemon's faith was real, it manifested itself in true biblical love. That love is agape love and is the love of will and choice of self-sacrifice and humility. Love is a fruit of the Spirit 
and a manifestation of genuine saving faith. Believers should not need to be taught this love because its source is already in them in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul does not forget for a moment that Christian love comes from faith in the Lord Jesus. He knows that the essence of the Christian life is faith working through love, and that comes from Galatians 5.6. The designation the Lord Jesus speaks of the divine-slash-human nature of him who is the object of faith. Christian faith recognizes and accepts both the divinity and humanity in him. Both are essential for saving faith. A faith which grasps only the humanity of Jesus has no basis for the hope of salvation, since a mere man cannot redeem men. But the faith which sees the infinite holiness of God incarnate in Jesus Christ finds a pure basis of salvation in the work of him who is both God and man. Philemon's faith in the Lord Jesus was no mere empty sentiment or profession. It expressed itself in his love toward all the saints. Philemon's concern for the saints gave him the ability to forgive. Love toward the saints includes the brother for whom Paul will plead. The case of Onesimus will be a test of Philemon's Christian love. And so Paul's statement puts it in the foreground. In this picture of Philemon's love toward all the saints, Paul no doubt intends for him to understand that Onesimus is now included among them. He must allow his love to be operative toward him as well. Paul thanks God for Philemon's love and faith, but he cannot rest satisfied with them without asking for more. So in verse 6, he prays, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. The NASB uses the word fellowship instead of sharing. The Greek word is koinonia and is difficult to translate precisely in English. It usually, uh, it's usually translated fellowship, but it means much more than merely enjoying each other's company. It refers to a, a mutual sharing of all life and could be translated belonging. Philemon's faith puts him into fellowship with the saints. This fellowship is, first of all, an inner spiritual relationship of all who truly believe in Christ. Out of this inner relationship flow those acts of love and brotherhood which characterize the Christian life. Believers belong to each other in a mutual partnership produced by their faith in Christ. By forgiving Onesimus, Philemon would acknowledge that he belonged to him as a brother in Christ. And so Paul prays that Philemon's faith may become effective. The Greek word here is energis, and it literally means powerful. Such an act of forgiveness would send a powerful message to the church about the importance of fellowship. Forgiving a fellow believer, no matter what their offense is, makes a strong statement of concern for fellowship. Paul prays that Philemon's faith may be constantly active or energetic and not passive or dormant 
but powerful in its relations to others, which will produce good fruit. The effectiveness of Philemon's faith could only be made possible, as the rest of verse 6 says, by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Acknowledgement, in this case, simply means knowledge of something. It is a knowledge which comes by possessing the grace of experience and character, which is only made possible to us by our new spiritual nature, which is God's gift in us. It involves the complete understanding of all God's given truth and the personal identification with the known will of God. This knowledge is the reward of faith manifesting itself in deeds of love. A believer who possesses such knowledge would be extremely advanced in his spiritual life. So it's evident that Philemon was spiritually mature. So Paul is confident that Philemon will want to experience a true knowledge of forgiveness by forgiving Onesimus. He gives him a gentle reminder of the importance of a concern for knowledge. And all this is to be in Christ. The Greek text literally reads, unto Christ. The goal of, of everything believers do should be the glory of Christ. Christian life, with all its achievements, all its development of character, all the edification, and all the suffering, is unto the glory of Christ, for his praise and his honor. This is the aim of the true life of grace. Although this prayer is quite broad and generally stated, it is clear from the contents of the letter that Paul had Onesimus in mind. The more Philemon comes to see these good things in other believers, the less he will be inclined to dismiss the request of Paul. His action of forgiveness and love to Onesimus will be a means of deepening his own experience of these good things. Paul was confident that Philemon would forgive Onesimus because he knew of Philemon's great concern to glorify Christ. And finally, we come to verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Philemon had a reputation for love, a fact that brought Paul much joy and consolation. But the love which brought joy to the apostle was not directed at him personally, but to others. It gladdened his own heart because it refreshed the hearts of the saints. He finds himself rested with those who find rest under Philemon's roof. Paul is happy to report that through Philemon, the hearts of the saints had been refreshed. The Greek word, Greek word for hearts is splanchna, which literally means bowels. It refers to the seat of the feelings. People who were struggling and suffering and, and hurting emotionally had been refreshed. Refreshed in the Greek word is anapao. And it's a military term that speaks of an army resting from a march. Philemon brought troubled people rest and renewal. He was a peacemaker. Paul's heart goes out in genuine love for him as he writes, as evidenced by the concluding word, brother. 
by its sudden and unusual position at the end of this sentence, it assumes the character of a, a sudden, irrepressible, spontaneous burst of love from Paul's heart toward Philemon. It's like a mother grabbing up her child and smothering it with hugs for no reason at all. Philemon has shown himself to be a true brother to Paul. With that thought, the apostle can now present to him the matter of his spiritual child Onesimus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for forgiving our, our many trespasses against you. We are not deserving of such perfect, loving kindness. But because of what Jesus did on the cross and the, the heavy price he paid, we are his slaves and we are at peace with you, Father. It should follow that if you forgave us, we should forgive others for trespasses against us in order to stem the flow of bitterness and strengthen our relationship with you. Also, it will block the schemes of the devil so he can't gain a foothold in our lives. Lord, give us strength to do that. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.